You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. There's a well-known passage here in Matthew 28. It's the conclusion of Matthew's Gospel. Jesus has, has risen from the grave. He has been appearing to his disciples. And furthermore, he has called his disciples to go to Galilee and to wait for him. And in verse 16, Matthew 28, verse 16, page 835, we read these words. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. What? Exactly. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what we're doing is something that has been instituted by Christ and commanded by Christ, who is in possession of absolute authority. So this isn't something man-made. This isn't something we conjured up. This is something that the Lord is calling us to do. And as we're going to see here, it's something that the Lord in His grace, coming alongside our weakness, has given to us to strengthen our faith. We are to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, one quick thought about this before we move on. Two quick thoughts. First of all is identification. By being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the baptized party is being brought to a place where he or she is being identified with the triune God, with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, right? And I told you, you might already start to feel like, boy, this is already starting to feel like a truck. Yeah, it's begun dumping. <laughs> okay? Now, the second thought is one we're going to have to be on for a little bit, but when Jesus... When Jesus ordains this, when Jesus institutes this ordinance or sacrament, whatever you prefer calling it, he's not doing it in a vacuum. Okay? There is a rich heritage that is in the background of this. For me studying, I think it was easier to see this with the Lord's Supper. You know, this morning's not a message on the Lord's Supper, but it's a message on baptism. Baptism is an ordinance, and the Lord's Supper is also an ordinance or a sacrament. And let's just think really quickly through the Lord's Supper. Some of you be familiar with the Lord's Supper. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, this is the eve of his crucifixion, the night before his crucifixion, he shared a meal with his disciples, right? At one point in the meal, he takes the bread and he lifts it up and he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. He's giving them an object lesson, so to speak. This is my body, which is broken for you. And then at another point in the, in the meal, he, he lifts the cup. And he says, this is the cup of the new covenant poured out in my blood. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Now, that isn't being done in a vacuum. And I think it's easier to see the rich heritage that's behind that than it is for me. It was easier to see the Lord's Supper than to see baptism. So let's quickly think, what is Jesus doing? Well, the meal that Jesus is sharing with his disciple is a Passover meal. Someone said, what is the Passover? Well, at one point in Israel's history, she became enslaved to Egypt. 
And God raised up a deliverer, and through a series of plagues, he is, he is delivering his people from Egypt. And the tenth and final plague was a plague on the firstborn. And God calls Moses to publish throughout all Egypt, listen, on, on this night coming up, you need to take a lamb, you need to sacrifice that lamb, you need to paint the, the, the blood of that lamb on your doorpost. And then on the night where the angel of destruction comes in, if he sees the blood on that doorpost, he will pass over your home. Now, furthermore, after this event took place, Israel was commanded to reenact this, act, this, this event once a year, weren't they? And thus we had the Passover feast, if you will, uh, where they, they, they reenacted it. They took a lamb, they slaughtered a lamb. Now, why would they do that? Because it was a reminder. It reminded them of this deliverance from Egypt. But it also taught them the idea that an innocent party could go in place of the guilty. What did this lamb have to do with the sin of this household? That's another important term here to hold on to, household. You know, God reveals himself to us as a father. That's, a fam that's family language, isn't it? He reveals himself to us as a father. And everyone in the household was to take a lamb. They were to have a lamb. It was to be spotless. And they were to sacrifice this lamb. If a household was too small, a couple households got together and did. But it was a household. There was households that came together. And this lamb was slaughtered. And imagine the children. As the children were growing up, they, they, they were going to ask questions. Well, you know, Daddy, why are we doing this? Well, that gave him the opportunity to teach. Well, you see, it was because we were delivered out of Egypt, you see, and, and, and we, we took the blood of the lamb, we slaughtered the lamb, and we painted it on the doorpost, and the angel of destruction saw the blood and passed over. Oh, Daddy, okay, so the lamb dies in our place. Yes, that's it. Now, at one point in Jesus, during Jesus' earthly ministry, John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching. And John the Baptist looks at Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know that verse, right? Now, that's not coming out of a vacuum. They would have understood the Lamb of God. These lambs all pointed towards Christ. Jesus would be, actually, the Lamb, capital L-A-M-B, the Lamb who would come to take away the sin of the world. And there on that night, on the eve of his crucifixion, his disciples didn't understand what's going on until afterwards. Just like we might not understand everything today, well, don't let, don't let go of God until he gives you understanding. Don't let go of him. The disciples did not let go of him until they understood. Don't let go of him until you understand. And then after you understand, keep holding on to him afterwards too. You will. Once you start to understand, you certainly will. But they come to understand that Jesus' death on the cross would take away the sins of the world, didn't they? So on that night, on the eve of his crucifixion, when Jesus said, this bread, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And this is this cup is the cup of the new covenant poured out in my blood. He's using common elements, bread, wine, common elements, in order to instruct us in spiritual things that we would otherwise not understand. And that's the grace. You see, the Lord's Supper proclaims Christ's death until we return. What, until he returns. What does that mean? It proclaims the gospel as we begin to understand it. What does that do? That strengthens our faith. What does that do? That causes, when we wander to the right or we wander to the left, that calls us back to the center, doesn't it? When we embrace these things by faith. Now, those principles right there are alive and well in baptism. 
When Jesus calls His church to go out and proclaim the gospel to all nations everywhere, He's calling them to baptize. Baptize everyone who responds to this, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, baptism also has a rich heritage. And to understand this, we need to go back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, to Genesis 17. To a subject that we might not know all so well. Page 11, if you're using the church's Bible. Page 11. You take your time getting there. We're, this, this is going to take a little longer than our sermons normally take, but it'll take as long as it takes. Now, look at, look at chapter 17 with me, starting with verse 1. Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abram, notice the word Abram. His name is Abram at this point. He comes into this thing with the name Abram. He's not going to leave with that name, but he comes to it with that name. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And again, you know, real quick, that does remind us, you know, think about what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And there's a parallel there to what is being said right here. I am God Almighty. Just hold on to that, just on the side. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant. See, this word covenant keeps coming up. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, before we go any further, there's this constant reference to the covenant. And what is this covenant? This covenant is a promise that God is making as a sovereign to people, broken people, broken people like us. Sometimes we can read the Bible and we can think, oh, all these biblical saints like Abraham and all these guys, they were perfect, you know, not like me. No, they were like us. Broken people. And the essence of the covenant, and this covenant runs all the way from Genesis to Revelation. We probably don't have time to get into all that this morning, but if we do, we will. We'll see how it goes. But this covenant goes all the way through Scripture. And the essence of the covenant is this. God is gathering people to himself, broken people, people with sinful pasts. He's, he's gathering people to himself, and he's saying, listen, I'm going to make you my people. And, and I am going to be your God. And I am going to dwell with you. That's the essence of the covenant we call in theology the covenant of grace. And this is what God is up to with Abraham. In verse 9, God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant 
which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Notice how closely God is calling his, he's, 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 you know, he's calling circumcision and his covenant so close together that he's almost interchanging the names. Where circumcision is called covenant and covenant is called circumcision. Notice how closely related that is in verse 10. If, if you get that, that's fine. If you don't get that detail, that, that'll be down the road. But I want to point that out. In verse 11, notice this. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a what? Exactly. This is the purpose of the ordinances. They are signs. Signs of what? Signs of God's covenant promises. What covenant promise? Abraham's already a believer here. He's not becoming a believer here. He's already a believer. He's already been asked to follow God to a land he doesn't know, and he's already done it. He's picked things up in his, you know, he's, he's in retirement age, and he picks things up, and off he goes. Uh, he's already a believer. But this is a sign of God's covenant promise, which basically says, listen, you know, Put your faith and trust in me, and I'm going to transform you into my people. I'm going to be your God, and I am going to dwell among you. That's the covenant promise. And, and to meet Abraham and his offspring in their weakness, God is giving them this sign. What sign? This sign of circumcision. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. That's verse 11. Verse 12. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. It's interesting, the eighth day. The eighth day is an important day. Today is the eighth day, isn't it? Anybody thought about that? What day is Jesus risen on? The eighth day. Saturday is the seventh day, right? That's when creation is completed on the seventh day. Well, on the eighth day, what happens? New creation. New life. This is a day of new life. Isn't it? It's a day we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a day of new life. And those who have put their faith and trust in Him, we're walking in that new life in which this day belongs, aren't we? That's why when we go off into, be, to be into, the, into heaven, we enter into an eternal Sabbath, an eternal new day, an eternal new life. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Now, in verse 12, we're saying it, 80 male in the household. Verse 12, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, he who is born in your house, he shall be brought, bought with your money, shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off. Hear that word, cut off. That's an important word. In fact, circumcision, the medical procedure, involves a cutting off, doesn't it? And, and, and that's, that's part of the rich part of, this, of what's being symbolized here. What's being cut off? That old life. Sin. Uh, the works of the flesh. There's all kinds of different phrases that are used throughout Scripture to describe it. But it's that old sinful life is being cut off is being cut off. Now, anyone who refuses the uncircumcision, they shall be cut off. So, where are we at right now? A lot of things have been shared, but let's, let's just recap where we, are, where we are right now before we go any further. What do we have here? We have a sign of the covenant being given. What covenant? The covenant of grace, where God is promising to gather broken people to Himself, transform them into His people. He is going to be their God, 
and he is going to dwell among them. And they're given this sign, circumcision. Okay, by the sign, they're being brought out from the world into this covenant community. Now, this sign isn't magically transforming them into a state of grace. So how do we know that? Because not everybody who's circumcised ultimately believes. We know that. You can see that all through Scripture. In fact, on the, on the, uh, the day that Jesus is on trial before Pilate, there were hordes of men who were circumcised who were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Okay, we know that, don't we? But get this in your mind right now. Those men who were circumcised were men who were set apart. They say, what? No, they were men who were set apart. They were men who had an indelible mark on their bodies that they were set apart. Now, in that case, all it did was increase their culpability in what they were doing. Okay, more about that here in a few minutes, okay? Um, this idea of circumcision has a rich, rich heritage. We'll look at a couple other passages of Scripture before we leave this and we move to baptism. If you turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 4, page 630, if you're using the church's Bible, Jeremiah chapter 4, and we're going to look at verse 4 here to start to see that circumcision, although it is a physical act, it speaks of a spiritual um, reality, if you will. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4. Page 630. Notice now, um, Jeremiah is one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. And you, some of you have heard me say in previous messages that the bulk of the, pro the work of the prophet was to call people back to covenant faithfulness. And that's what's going on here in Jeremiah 4. I mean, when we think of prophecy, what do we usually think of? We think of somebody telling some event in the future and then it coming to pass. They did do that. But most of their writings, if you read their writings and you study their writings, you're going to see a majority of their writings is simply calling people back to what they already know. And this is what, this is what God is doing through Jeremiah. He says to wayward Judah, God says to them through Jeremiah, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your what? Hearts. Your hearts. Now they were circumcised men, but their hearts were far from him. They were brought into the covenant community of God by virtue of their circumcision. And by being brought into the covenant community of God, they were set apart because they had this indelible mark on their bodies that set them apart from the rest of the world. But their hearts weren't right. So you can be circumcised and still be lost. In fact, your circumcision would make you even more culpable than if you had never been circumcised. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Now what we're learning right here is that circumcision speaks to repentance. It speaks to repentance, doesn't it? Is everybody okay with that? Looking around trying to read and... Some of you are easier than others, right? <laughs> Not drawing any attention to anybody who might be in about the middle of the road to my right. Uh, some of us are easier to read, but I actually, I, I spend a lot, I, mean, I want to make sure we're all tracking as best we can. But what we see here is circumcision, it speaks to repentance. What's this? This is a call to repentance. 
The men of Judah are off to the right or they're off to the left. And what is God doing through Jeremiah? He's calling them back to faithfulness. Circumcise your hearts. Now, another imagery. For this one, let's turn to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, page 172, if you're looking at the church's Bible. And those are visiting with us. We don't usually do this. Go. Usually we're on a text and we go through the text and... I don't want you to think we do this all the time, but um, someone will say, boy, we've already been in so many texts, I'm not going to remember them all. Hopefully the tape, you'll be able to listen to the tape. But I'm available to everyone here. All you got to do is send me a text. If you don't have my number, somebody here will give it to you. Um, reach out to me. It's just so important. Uh, it would be a joy to share with you. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Notice this. Now here the Lord is also speaking through Moses. And we're told this, the Lord your God will what? Circumcise your, Circumcise your heart. Here we see that this is the activity of God. This is not the activity of men. That's going to become important when we get to Colossians chapter 2, which we've already read this morning. Now, in theology, we have a fancy word for this. If you want the fancy word, we call it regeneration. We like words that end with T-I-O-N, you know? Salvation, sanctification, justification, regeneration. We just love those words. The more syllables, the better. We love them. Um, probably second only to Latin phrases. I mean, I love those Latin phrases, too. I'm just all joking aside here. Um, what is regeneration? It's the secret work of God working in our hearts. We have a problem. Every human being has a problem. We are rebels. No one had to teach us to be bad. I didn't have to be taught to be bad. My parents are here and they'll testify to that. No. What is the work of parents? I've been praying for you young parents. I've been praying for old parents. I've been praying for grandparents. What is the work? The work of a parent is trying to teach a child to be good, not to be bad. Why are we, why are we like that? We rebel against authority. Our parental authority and our, our God's authority. This is how we come out of the box. And we, we require that God do something to us. God must do something to us. What is that? We call it theology. We call it regeneration. Jesus doesn't use the word regeneration when he's talking to Nicodemus famously in John chapter 3. What does Jesus say to Nicodemus? Unless a man is born, born again. He says he cannot even see the kingdom of God. This is why when we share the gospel with a lot of people, it's just like this. If you don't believe me, go do it. This afternoon, go, go to some family members or something. Share the gospel and watch. You'll see. A lot of times it just falls off the back, like water off the back of a duck. It's just this stuff. Why is that? God has to work in our hearts. But I want to encourage you to go tell your family and friends about the gospel because God works through the gospel. He might not work then and there in that very moment, but he works through the gospel. Everybody who's come to faith in Christ Jesus has heard the gospel, right? As adults, okay? Now, here we have circumcision being likened to this secret work, if you will. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a sign, a symbol of how God is transforming broken people to become his people. You see, circumcision is a covenant sign. What is this covenant? What is this covenant? You put your faith and trust in God, and He will transform you into His people. He will be your God, and He will dwell in your midst. Sound good? So we see circumcision is a covenant sign, right? It's also it sets us apart as the people of God, right? So in that sense, we're holy. 
That doesn't mean that we're in a state of grace. That's another thing. We'll get to that here in a minute. One, just one thing at a time here. It means we're set apart. A circumcised individual in the Old Testament economy is set apart from the rest of the world by virtue of his circumcision because he has been brought into the covenant community of God. But we already see that there were many circumcised men who ultimately were not believers. Okay? But circumcision also speaks, if you will, of that secret operation of God that transforms us into the people of God. Does that make sense so far? All right. Now, one other thing before we move into baptism, because there is a place where circumcision and baptism meet. Does anybody want to guess where that place is? The cross. Now, how? Someone say, what? How does it meet at the cross? Because circumcision, the bloody rite of circumcision, points, just like the lamb points to Jesus, circumcision points to Jesus. How is it that the sin that's being put off is going to be dealt with. How is this sin going to be? There's only one way to deal with that sin, and that's Christ going in place of the sinner. Just like the lamb figuratively went before the family in the Old Testament, Jesus is the lamb with a capital L, and he goes before, uh, before the sinner, right? He says to himself, listen, Maggie, I'm going to have nothing to do with you suffering for your sins. I am going in your place. Peyton, I'll have nothing of it. I'm going in your place, and et cetera, et cetera. And he dies a bloody death. And that bloodshed is his circumcision. But that bloodshed is also the cleansing agent. The hymn writers got this so right. Hymns like nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow, right? That make me whole. They got that, didn't they? So you see the circumcision is that bloody rite of putting off, if you will, the sins. And Christ Jesus' death on the cross, which the bloodshed is emblematic of, the shedding of his blood is emblematic of his death going in the place of sinners, where he truly washes us from our sins the moment we put our faith and our trust in him. So in essence, we are washed. Now, a bloody rite is no longer appropriate after Jesus sheds his blood on the cross, so he gives us a new covenant sign, and that new covenant sign is baptism. And if you turn to Colossians chapter 2, which we looked at already earlier in the service, the Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, page 984, if you're using the church's Bible, and here we see circumcision and baptism put together. And Paul writes things that are hard to understand, says Peter, right? And I would say, Peter, you write some things that are hard to understand too. But Paul really does. You know, we, we read from Romans 6, um, and I said, listen, if you read this and you thought, what in the world is he talking about? Um, you know, it, don't, it takes time to get that. Um, in Romans 6, Paul's actually expanding on what he's, what he's sharing with us here in Colossians 2. But if you look at verse 11... The Apostle Paul says, and, he, and he's writing to believers, okay? It's important we understand this. He's not writing to the world in general here. He's writing to those who are in the faith. That's important. So he says in him, now who is the antecedent of him? It's Christ. He says, in Christ, you, who is the you? The believing community at Colossae, and by application, the believing community in all ages. So, okay? In him also you were what? 
circumcised with a circumcision made anyone without hands. Now, how do you do this without hands? Obviously, it's not something that human beings do. That's the point. It's divine activity. It's something that God has done. Now, you remember, you said, wait a second. Now, that's, that's what Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 was talking about. God was promising to well, circumcise the hearts so that people would come to know and love him. That's exactly right. That's what Jesus is talking about to Nicodemus. Unless you've been born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. It's the secret activity of God. But it's being referred to as circumcision. The secret activity. Activity of what? Cutting off the old person. Cutting off the old and bringing in the new. Does that make sense? Cutting off the old. And, and, and any, any Jews reading this would be like, what circumcision is the covenant sign? Okay, what do we got going on here? Okay, and him you were circumcised. Well, the circumcision, maybe that is. Oh, I get that. This Deuteronomy 36. I get that. By putting off the body of flesh. I get that. By the circumcision of Christ. Here we're taught that the Lord himself is involved in this work in our hearts. You know, the Trinity never goes on solo projects. You've heard me say that. You know, the Eagles was a band we grew up listening to. And our school, as I've shared with you, our school bus driver was also a woman that went to our church. I loved her. She kept us in line with an eight-track of the Eagles. That dates me a little bit. She kept us in line with this eight-track. And she, as soon as we started getting out of line, she goes, you guys, you guys better can it back there or I'm going to turn off the Eagles. Well, the first warning we knew was just a warning shot. We would slow down a little bit. The second warning, not so much. Dot would turn off. Dot would, she would turn off the Eagles. We loved that band so much we didn't want it turned off. Right, Harry? I mean, we wanted to hear the Eagles. You, used to, you know, now the Eagles, the band, the Eagles, they all went off on solo projects. Many of them had very, they had successful solo careers. The Trinity doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't go off on a solo project. Jesus is always working in close relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And as we study the Trinity, and we study the, the work and the action of the Trinity, we see they're all together. And here we see that the circumcision of Christ, this work of the Lord, actually a work that we generally attribute to the Holy Spirit, we see that the Lord is working in it as well, for it is the circumcision of Christ. What is it? It's that cutting off of the old person, secretly and inwardly in the heart. This happens as we, you know, as, as, as our eyes are opened, as the scales, if you will, uh, Acts chapter 9, as they fall off our eyes and we begin to see the beauty of Jesus and we want to be His. We want to turn from this world and we want to follow Him. This work has taken place in our heart. This is something that is true of every single believer ever, past, present, and future. You have had this spiritual surgery taking place in your heart by the Lord without hands, circumcising your heart, putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Look at verse 12 having been buried with him in baptism. So that sounds like that Romans 6 thing that we read. Yes, 
Romans 6 expands on it and gives us some more details on it. But what is going on here? The moment, you remember how Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Okay, that's identification. That's bringing us into identification with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the moment you put, some of you know my cross and stick figure drawing that I like to write. Many of you have been through the cross and stick figure. And I've shared with you, as the sinner, as the sinner embraces Christ in faith, he is brought into, or she is brought into union with, with Christ. So in this spiritual sense, he or she has died with Christ on the cross. Died what? Well, when Jesus dies on the cross, he, he dies on the cross for the sins of those whom he's come to save. That old sinner on the cross with Jesus dies. But also, when Jesus is raised... Guess what? Amen is right. In this spiritual sense, we're raised with him. That's why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 could say that, that the believer is seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Right? You're going to, you start to see this, you're going to see this all over the scriptures. You're going to see it everywhere. It'll click, and you'll be like, I see this, and I see, I don't see this in remote places here and there. I see this everywhere. That's the point. God knows that we're thick and we're a little slow to understand. Okay, listen, my name is Rick Anderson. I'm a little bit thick and I'm a little slow to understand. God knows that about me. So if, if some of this, if you feel like your truck's been dumped on you by now, mm, yeah, you're buried. <laughs> you're buried if you're getting this for the first time. But I want to encourage you to continue to work through it. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith, and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Our faith brings us into union with Christ, and that union brings us into union with his death on the cross and his resurrection to new life. That's the glory of the gospel, isn't it? Takes you right to the glory of the gospel. Now, what's baptism? Baptism is a sign of the new covenant. Now, here's the principle. Just as circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with Abraham, which is a covenant of grace in the administration that came before Jesus was crucified. Jesus sheds his blood. Remember, at the Lord's Supper. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant poured out in my blood. Jesus is ratifying the new covenant, same covenant of grace being ratified under a new administration, where now the sign is baptism. Now, what, what does baptism mean? Well, baptism means simply this. If you put your faith and your trust in Christ, just as water washes dirt from your body, so will the death of Christ wash your sins away. Does that make sense? Let me tell a story here that I think will start to put all this together. Because right now, it's almost like you've ordered something from online and you, you, you're horrified by the words on the side of the box that says assembly required. Uh, some of us are horrified by that. Some of us enjoy that kind of thing, but some of us are, oh no, assembly required. That means there's a bunch of little parts. It's almost like we've got all these parts scattered all over the floor. Let's put some of them together with a story. Years ago, I was thinking about this yesterday, of how to put this all together. Years ago, now it's been close to almost 20 years ago, I used to go out to Columbiana County Jail and do services. You've heard me speak about that. that uh, I wouldn't trade those experiences for the world. I used to go out and do services for the three populations that were out at Columbiana County Jail. The male misdemeanor population, then the female, which was a mixed population of misdemeanors and felon, and then there was a population, uh, a male felon population. 
And I used to go out there, and I just immediately fell in love with the people out there. And um, I'd go out every other week. And about three, four months in, some of them started to say, oh, you know, uh, Rick, could we talk to you? I mean, could, could, is there any way you could come out so we could talk? Sure. You know, I never told anybody, no, I would drive out there, usually on a Thursday, and uh, would meet with them. And here's something I heard, not just once, not just twice, but over and over again. I would hear this story. You know, um, I, my grandmother usually was a grandparent. My grandmother took me to church, and I, I heard the preacher's message, and he called us all forward, and he invited us to pray a prayer with him, and then we were baptized. And then shortly after that, I went right back out and got in trouble again. And then when I got back out of trouble, I thought, maybe I should go. Listen, this was tear-jerking, because they were speaking from the bottom of their hearts. I went back out again. I went to the church. I went forward again. He said a prayer with me. I was baptized. Some of, these, some of these folks went through this three or four times. The same thing, three or four times. And I started hearing things like this. I don't know what went wrong. And one fella said, it must not have took. Almost, you've heard some of, some of you have heard this before. This is, not a, this is not a small little thing. Now, what in the world would you say to them? You know, it caused me to go back and really study just what's going on with baptism. What is actually happening here? Because at the time, most of what I generally heard that baptism was about a personal profession of faith that meant, okay, I am turning from the world and now I am engaged to be with, to be with the Lord. I'm turning, from, I'm turning from the world and now I promised to be the Lord's. Now, it's not, that's not something that baptism does relate to that, but that's not chiefly and principally what baptism is about. We need to keep in mind when we're reading our Bibles that we have a sinful tendency to make everything about us. Sometimes we correct our children and say, you know you're acting like the world revolves around you. Don't let the kids hear this one. Sometimes we're acting like the world revolves around us. We're just big kids, aren't we? Well, the kids didn't hear that, did they? Oh, a couple of them did. Sorry. Pastor said, you just have a big kid. Now, don't say that to your parents. <laughs> I take no responsibility for that. <laughs> but it's, our, it's, it's, you know, the moment we come to faith in Christ, we're not made perfect, are we? And we have a tendency to read Scripture like it's always talking about us, but it isn't always talking about us. Sometimes it is talking about us, but most of the time it's talking about Jesus. It's talking about God. And baptism, the sacraments, aren't chiefly and principally about us. The baptism is a sign of the covenant which says this. You put your faith and your trust in Christ Jesus. And just as water washes the filth away from your sin, or the, the, the filth away from your body, so does the death of Christ wash away your sins. It's meant to strengthen our faith. So what do you say to the inmates? You know, here's what you say to the inmates. Listen. There's nothing wrong with your baptism. In fact, you didn't need to be baptized two or three or four or five times. You should have only been baptized once. Nothing against your... I don't mean anything disparaging against your church or your pastor or anybody. But baptism leaves an indelible mark on you, and it's a sign of, it's a sign of God's covenant promises that says this. If you put your faith and your trust in Christ Jesus, just as water washes the dirt away from your body, so does... The death of Christ wash away your sins. 
So baptism suddenly becomes a preacher. And it becomes useful to us in our walk. Baptism isn't something that we do and then we forget about. How many woke up this morning, the first thing you thought about was your baptism? How many have thought about their baptism in the last week? See, we missed this one. You know, because this is meant to proclaim the gospel to us over and over again. If you've been baptized and in a mark, there's a mark on your soul that you just like to circumcise. You've been gathered out of the world. Doesn't mean you're saved. Lots of baptized people continue to go into the world and they're still in their sins. You know, that's, that's, what, that's what the inmates were complaining about and we know that is a reality. But there's still a mark on you. Take a look with me to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7. I think this will be the last passage we look at. Uh, you'll find the passage I have in mind on page 955 if you're using the uh, church's Bible. 1 Corinthians 7, um, verses 12 through 14. There's a principle here that we have to get our minds around, and we're going we're gonna to misinterpret some things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12, Paul says, If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Okay? Verse 13, If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now look at verse 14. This can really cause you to scratch your head unless you've got these categories sorted out. Really, you'll scratch half the hair off your head. Verse 14, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. Now, when we first read that for the first time, we think, how can that be? You mean the unbelieving, the unbelieving husband is going to be brought into a state of grace because of the believing wife? No, that's not what Paul's saying, although that could happen by the witness of the believing wife. That could happen. But that's not what Paul's talking about. If you continue to read verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband, otherwise your children would be what? Unclean. That's an old, that's Old Testament language. Isn't it? Because Paul's preaching from an Old Testament. He's preaching from the Hebrew Bible at this point. The New Testament is being written during this time. Paul's preaching from what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And he's using this language, unclean. Okay, a person who was uncircumcised was unclean. And so they were brought into the family, into the, the, the covenant community, and they were circumcised. Now they become clean. doesn't mean that they are in a state of grace, but it means that they're set apart with an indelible mark on their bodies that they belong to the Lord. Now, Paul is saying that by virtue of at least one believing parent, the children are set apart. That shouldn't be hard for us to understand because there's a lot of parents here this morning, and I'm going to ask every parent here this morning, do you think God passes children out like this? Like a, like a farmer would scatter seed on his ground? There ain't no one of you think that, is there? Now, when you kiss your young ones uh, on the forehead at night as you put them to bed, you kiss them with full recognition that God has given you those children, don't you? They're yours. Now, they could have been born anywhere. You know, Owen, James Bean, could have been born anywhere. But he wasn't born anywhere, any more than any one of us have been born anywhere. 
James Owen Bean was given to Alex and Emily. And we're very thankful that he's been given to Tri-State Community Church, aren't we? 